At approximately 5.15 p.m. on May 10th in 1967, three boys ages 11, 13, and 14 explore a cave near their house in Mark Twain's hometown of Hannibal, Missouri. Brothers Billy Hogue, Joel Hogue, and friend Craig Dow are never seen again. Making the case go cold for over 50 years. Using the facts from 1967, we reopen the case for the lost boys of Hannibal. If you stay, stay darling, stay in my corner, you'll make me oh so proud. Stay darling, Welcome back to the Lost Boys of Hannibal podcast. I'm your host, Frankie Cambaletta, and with me as always, because I wouldn't have it any other way, because I can't at this point, because we're two seasons deep. Right. Scatters. <laughs> Wasn't that hard? It doing, was so Frankie? heartfelt. I'm, I'm doing well. I mean, I, I think the last episode was very informative, and I'm sure people were like, man, I really wanted them to get into something more, you know, crazy and exciting. <laughs> like, well, you're here now, aren't you? So... Um, we gave them a little flavor. Definitely, at the end too, so it definitely helps. there was this rise in it, right? But I think you have to establish who J. A. Tobin is. If you keep saying J. A. Tobin, and I just listened to maybe three podcasts, maybe I'm one of those people, Chris, that actually listened just to the last, the season wrap, because we, because <laughs> yeah. there's definitely people that yeah. have done that. And then I just <laughs> hopped on here to listen to the construction company because that was my theory. I'm going to want to know all yeah. that information. So I think that that's, that's yeah, a good point. Yeah. So it's pretty good that we went through and did a deep dive. Everybody knows more or less about J.A. Tobin. Also, per your comment um, last episode, I think it's important that people, you know, that are going to pick up the research, you know, if, if in the off chance, in the very off chance that we don't solve this or find the boys, at least they know they have some ground, they have some footing, and, and they have some footholds where they can look back at these episodes as their guide, like, hey, this is where we are. Hopefully you guys can add to the conversation. That's what we're always doing. And speaking of adding to the conversation, you wanted to give a shout-out to uh, – well, we wanted to give a shout-out to our favorite funeral home, the last people to let you down. <laughs> wow. Uh, the James O'Donnell Funeral Home. Uh, they gave us a plug, and I, I – man, I feel so bad. They, they gave us a plug on their Facebook page – way back when we started and we just never got around to uh giving them a shout out back so uh james o'donnell funeral home ironically is downtown hannibal they are probably within eh, half a mile of murphy's cave so uh real nice guys there uh so yeah um definitely appreciate the shout out yeah we definitely and and everybody absolutely we definitely have the audience now where i think the reach is is bigger now for them. I think that's what more or less my, my reservations of shooting or giving shout outs to people too. It's like, you know, now that we have a bigger reach, a bigger depth and bigger foothold, like it's nice to let people know that, Hey, like we have local businesses supporting us, supporting our podcast. Um, you know, some, some funeral directors are, I have a couple good friends of mine, you know, my Italian families, you know, funeral homes are a thing. Um, um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, you know, they have the best sense of humor. They really, really do. Um, they're usually down-to-earth people, salt-of-the-earth type people. Um, and so we just want to say, you know, thank you for listening. If you are still listening, great job. Awesome. Thank you. Um, and then I think the thing that I wanted to mention, too, is that we will be ending this season soon, Chris. We only have a couple episodes left. Yeah. 
but surprising. We had, we had a really good idea. Instead of giving you guys bonus episodes this year, we've saved them all for the off season. That way, once a month, you guys can we can check in with you guys and drop some bonus episodes. And I can't promise that it'll be two episodes a month, but I can promise at least one episode in the dry months where we are preparing for, I think, season three being maybe in possibility our final season and then moving into the documentary. So those things are... You just dropped a bomb there, Frankie. <laughs> That's big news right I there. I know, but we have some... <laughs> my, some of my film people are in town. Uh, we'll be on the ground... Um, you know, we were on the ground, actually, in Hannibal. Uh, so some fun things are going to come out of that. Uh, there's some other stuff I would love to fill you in with, but I, we can't right now. But we have we have some really important stuff, good leads, um, a lot of support. Let me fill them in. <laughs> <laughs> we I, I mentioned I kind of prefaced this a little bit in our discussion group, which, by the way, we bring it up all the time. If you're not on there and you're on Facebook, join the discussion group because there's great conversation going on all there uh, all the time. But I am excited, and I did post this because I'm excited because we are getting in the process. We are actually doing the legwork now to start our whole quote-unquote boots-on-the-ground effort. So the investigation, as Frankie just mentioned, we're switching to season three, and that's coming up pretty soon. We have just like two episodes possibly left for this season, maybe maybe one more, but two for sure. Um, but we're already switching to, all right, we've, we've done the research, we've talked about Tobin, we've talked about all these different things, now it's time to put some action to some of these different things that we got going on. And we've had some some ideas that have been brought forth to us uh, by some individuals in the discussion group that has led us to get into our first steps of trying to put some, some marks, some X's on some spots, not only to look at those spots, but also to eliminate them as a possibility. Mm-hmm. So um, that's that's what we're working on. I'm really excited because we're already ready for this fall, and we're ready to start making some of those boots on the ground efforts to uh, to. And we're going to need those out. that fall foliage um, to do some of that yeah. research too. So. Yeah, I hope in the future episodes, I I, I haven't uh, confirmed with the person that we're working with, and I'm going to do that. And hopefully in the next episode, we can talk about exactly um, a little more, just a little bit of detail about who we're working with. Because who we're working with is actually exciting in its own right. Um, and actually, I was telling Frankie, this could be its own story in its own about who we're it's working with. It's a beautiful with. story, so, Chris. It's an incredible, encapsulating, full circle, 360 story that will basically tug at the heartstrings of anybody that's near and dear to this story. Because there's some kind kind of fulfillment here that there might be an answer to somebody's you know one of the things that that in his life that he regretted could come full circle um so i think that this what we're what we're gearing up to and as we close as we come to the close of this season with the next couple episodes uh, there's a lot to remember there's a lot to think on the discussion groups are going to be open. The Facebook pages are going to be open. Uh, we're going to do bonus episodes during the off season. We're probably going to do another Facebook live, but in person, I'd love to do something in person around Halloween mm-hmm. would be great. That's my favorite holiday in the world. Hopefully, you know, things will be returning more to normal at that point. And so, you know, we'll, we'll definitely be watch your messages, watch your Facebook groups. I'm going to be asking questions over the next couple of weeks. So, um, to see what you guys are 
interested in where we should go with everything else. But like I saying, we're not saying that season three is the final season, but if things fall into place the way we think they should be, then filming and getting this documentary done in a year would be incredible for um, the town. It would be incredible for the press and it would be incredible for the exposure um, for these remaining family members. Uh, Cause that's really one of our key audiences. As we mentioned in the last episode, it's important that we have champion that they champion us to do the work, the hard work, um, without gain. Right? There's there's momentum in that. There's there's heart and there's faith in that. But at the same time, like there is monetary concern with some of the stuff that we're doing. But hopefully, through faith, wisdom, and um, a little bit of pixie dust, as I like to say. We might be able to get through this stuff um, without, you know, using these boys in, in any other way that, other than to find them. I think that, that is, that's yeah. been the point. That's been our point since day one. In July, July 29th, when we first launched our episode, it's always been, and we've always stuck to that. Um, so, And Frankie, I can see a scenario, too, where even though we're talking about season three possibly being the last, I can also, you know, there's a lot of podcasts out there, and... and um, hopefully in the next few weeks we're going to have a really special kind of connection with another podcast that is dealing with uh, some of the same scenarios that we are. Um, so be looking for that. But I see a scenario where a lot of these podcasts are saying, um, this isn't the end. This may be the end, but we're going to bring you updates. And I, I do see a scenario where we come back on this yeah. podcast after season three and kind of still keep keep things updated. Because, you know, honestly, uh, until, this, until the mystery solved – it's really open ended, and, and maybe we could come back one day once this podcast, you know, you know, whenever we figure that out, and be able to give that. Hey, this is yeah, what happened. I mean, from the ground too. Like when you look at the the kids that are going to be playing, uh, doing the reenactments, you know, it'd be great to have them, you know, with their parent consent, of course, and all that legal stuff. But to have them on the podcast to talk about playing the role of Billy and playing the role of Joel, these are going to be fun episodes. They're going to be geared toward that insider knowledge about the filming of the lost boys of hannibal and that's what a season four might be looking like you might be talking to the lighters and the directors and the camera makers and stuff like that that are kind of bringing the story back to life so once again that's when we're going to start gearing up and really getting charged um i have a, a good friend in town with me and we are hoping to shoot a very nice like trailer a five minute trailer for the end of this season um to really get momentum and then hopefully, Chris, what I was thinking is even getting a Kickstarter um, started. Um, that way people can be a part of the film where, you know, there's producers. It's bigger than Patreon, right? It's bigger because you become part of the film. I mean, I'm, you're in the cast. You're in the credits. You get the first viewings. You get Q&A. You get all these different things that we can do for a Kickstarter for the film. Um, and I know that I get asked this question a lot, Chris. I know that some people private message us to Lost Boys of Hannibal and – I've had two or three messages in the last month that I just found were really interesting, but I do want to answer it on the air because I feel it is a concern. Somebody asked me, well, how much does it take to do a documentary? Um, what does it cost to do a documentary? And honestly, 
Most documentaries cost between twenty five and forty five thousand um, dollars. Tiger King mm-hmm. cost them twenty seven thousand dollars to make. That was at the end of the day, and that's actually what Netflix, I believe, paid them. I got that from another friend that worked on the Motley Crew um, documentary. Um, he spent about thirty thousand um, dollars, and then Motley Crew basically scratched him and stuff like that. So when you're doing documentary film. That's the range. It's not like Hollywood where you need millions and millions and millions of dollars. Yeah. And I wanted to point that out because, like, the big numbers people look at sometimes and they're like, man, it's like they're never going to get that documentary done. You know, like, who's going to come up with all that money? Shift Films owns all the equipment. It's just the labor. It really is. And then there's post, Chris. There's that production. There's that marketing <laughs> thing that you got to make the film yeah. look good. You know, you got to make it sound good. And, and so, thankfully and faithfully, we are, you know, we're going to respond to that. In season three, we're going to be talking more about, you know, those production and what we're trying to build and how we're going to reenact this. And that is really what I'm going to lean on the Hogue and the Dow family, the remaining family members, to make sure that when we do these reenactments that they are accurate, that they make sense, and that they are something that makes sense to them. The, the one thing I, I, I can't stand, Chris, is like when you do a reenactment of something and it's just not true. And this is the stuff not that accurate. like haunted Hannibal where you had a beautiful town there where you could have gone into so many amazing stories and you chose to do something that was just bizarre. And, you know, with yeah. us, we don't want to do that. We want to make sure that it's actual, factual, and that the stuff and the designs, I mean, you know, the cars that we have in the shift lot that were there at the time that would have been seen in the background and stuff like that. You know, it's just, it's just bringing 1967 back to life. And that's what I want to do for those reenactments. So I know that was a little long-winded, yeah. but I just wanted to answer those questions to people because... Well, and you can, I, you know, I also think we go back to the beginning of this season when we talked about our goal. And when we got to the end of last season, the beginning of this season, our goal was we're going to do all these interviews and talk with all these yep. people. And that didn't happen because of what was happening in the world with COVID. And I still see there's definitely, if if we can get down to the road where all this kind of settles down, I'd still think we're going to go back to that scenario where we're going to start talking to some of those people that were uh, lined up. I mean, again, uh, we're doing this uh, through the internet. I have this board in my office here to my left that, that has names of people that I know we have interviews set up for, but we couldn't do them because of how what what the world is like today. So, um, so hopefully we can get back to that still too, because there's still a lot of questions, and, and I hope people don't take this the wrong way. Is that we're, um, you know, season two is really it. Now we're going to talk about the documentary. There's so much more we have to cover yet yeah. that we haven't um, that we still need to do, and that's what right. season three. Season about three as well. is that fringe point. It's the point where, okay, the first season is understand the story, what happened. Season two is like, well, the case just goes cold. Was it serial killers? Was it the construction company? Was it the mayor? Was it the politics? Was it all these different things? Are they still in the caves? And so if you start seeing the thematics that we're building, we're going to take each part and we build that act structure for the documentary. So a lot of you guys that have been listening and been with us since July 29, right, of 2019 are going to start to see this thing come to life and see over the passage of time because we're going to be hitting 2021 pretty quick here chris and now we're looking at almost a year and a half to two years into three years that we started this journey you're looking at film production you're four years five years into it when that film's released so that schedule there is like we're not going anywhere (laughs) we just (laughs) yeah we we just don't want to be at the point where it's dead air and we have nothing to discuss we want to we want to be in a point where 
the questions are still coming in and we still have rabbit holes to search. Are they, you know, do they make for a good episode? Well, not like today's episode. Today's episode <laughs> is incredible because you learned about the history of J.E. Tobin. If you haven't listened to it or you just got 15 minutes and you got to go back and you have to understand who these people are because from the broad side of it, if you were just looking from the spectator and you saw all these wins, you would think that this company was untouchable, that they were doing all the right things, Chris, <laughs> but that's just not the case. And so with that, we will segue into part two of J.A. Tobin. Yeah, and we're going to deep dive right away because we're just going to jump right into the nitty gritty. And we're going to talk about the dark side, the lawsuits that this company have. Now, again, you have a company this big, you're going to expect there's going to be some lawsuits. And um, but there's some on here and, and quite a few on here that kind of hit me to where I'm like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to have to tell people about this one. Um, so we're going to go through them and this is probably the, this is probably going to be the longest part of this whole uh, episode, but I think it's important to get a feeling for who exactly Tobin, uh, J. Tobin construction company was. Um, so here we go. You ready, Frankie? All right. So we start in 1958 and it was the uh, Wayne County in Kansas. There was a $50,000 lawsuit by a homeowner and they were alleging that a blasting noise caused him to have a heart attack. So he was suing the company for $50,000. I mean, that's pretty generalized. In 1959, also in that uh, Wayne County, Kansas, there was a $1 million suit and it was issued by 71 individuals and businesses. And the reason they did this was because of, you know, last episode, so we talked about they did not only roads, but they did dams and reservoirs and um, airports, things like that. Well, this was a dam that they did. Uh, it was uh, 71 individuals that were filing this lawsuit because of damages resulting in the construction of an earthen dam across Turkey Creek uh, in Wayne County. So what happened was that water got diverted and flooded some homes. And again, this is 1959. You don't have environmental impacts uh, uh, surveys going out and stuff like that. So, yeah. And to keep it in, pers um, to so keep it in perspective, that. Chris, a million dollars is $8.9 million. Okay. Um, when you want to talk about, you know, the one guy that sues for $50,000, right? Let's, you know, it's, it doesn't sound like a lot of money today, but that's $500,000 at the time. That's a half a million dollars he's suing for, for almost dying and having a heart attack. So, well, it, yeah. So to put it in the inflation yeah, calculator, right. it really brings things to life. So I just thought I, I should do that because we did that last episode. But man, that's, there's a million, just so you have an $8 million lawsuit or $9 million lawsuit. You have a half a million dollar lawsuit. And yeah. they continue. That's only the two of them. Uh, so we turn to 1961. This one's an interesting one, and so I kept the article. I'm just gonna. I'm probably gonna read some of this. I'm not gonna read it all, but it says uh, an unusual situation was revealed in the Muscogee Court this week for the Tobin Construction Company, which is building and relocating sections of high, uh, State Highway Nine and Eufolia Reservoir. The situation was reported to be bewildering. That was the first paragraph of this article. And so I was like, Ooh, this is sounds wow. interesting. Uh, the government was asking the federal court money to give immediate possession to the Corps of Engineers for a quarry from which the company was mining rock for the relocation project. It wanted the quarry for the right-of-way for construction of another section of the same highway. The company contract was about 40% complete. Bids for the contract for the additional construction are due to be opened by the Corps Thursday. Obviously, if the Tobin Company was de deprived of rock, it would be embarrassed on its contract. Such interesting wording in 1959. Yeah. Like, is that, uh, are you trying to be poetic? <laughs> 
the federal judge Eugene Rice recessed court a while to permit conferences between representatives of the Corps and the construction company with the view of finding a way out and so on and so forth. So that, that was 1961. That was in Oklahoma. In 1962, this has to do with I-44 in Springfield, Missouri. And this is another article. $75,000 damage suit <clears throat> excuse me, was filed in a Barry County Circuit Court by an Olympia, Washington man. And it was transferred to Missouri on a change of venue. James Bartholomew, plaintiff in the action, fled the lawsuit excuse me, filed the lawsuit against City National Bank and Trust Company, Elma Kinzer and a couple other names, uh, against the J.A. Tobin Construction Company. He alleged that Gillas, Snyder, and the Tobin Companies were awarded contracts and subcontracts for construction of Interstate 44 in Greene County. Barmolithu, <laughs> I promise. Bartholomew? Asked $50,000. Yeah, there you go. That's what I was trying to say. <laughs> He's asking for $50,000 for injuries he alleged suffered from an accident on October 14th of 1958 and $25,000 for the wrongful death of his wife, Merle. So that was a wrongful death lawsuit against Tobin Construction in How did she die? Um, sounds like it was a car accident, but it had something to do Road with... Road construction? Says here, <clears throat> says here the collision with another car occurred on I-44 because the three construction firms failed to give warning that uh. west-east and westbound traffic was bound I-44, over which both being routed was carrying two-way traffic. Interesting. Yeah, so... That, uh, unfortunately, here's the deal about these two, uh, these lawsuits. You, we hear about what the lawsuit is, but in very few instances, we actually hear what the results of them are. There is a few that we know what the results of them are, but for the most part, we just get the stories about the lawsuits themselves. Uh, 1963, this is Wright versus Tobin. Uh, I'm not going to read all this, but uh, Roy M. Wright uh, was an employee of Tobin Construction Company, and he incurred a hernia. Uh, while he was working so he went to the doctors in 1959 and he they wanted him to have surgery but he couldn't afford the surgery at that time and instead wore a truss the parties stipulated that on june 18 of 1960 wright suffered an accident of unusual strain arising out of and in the course of his employment which caused a strangulated right hernia condition hmm. so that was a lawsuit against tobin about uh, employee in 1965, Tobin versus Weed. This one has to do with a tax deficiency. So it talks about Tobin Construction is actually going against somebody on this one. Uh, talking about uh, the Director of Revenue issued a use tax deficiency assessment and demanded a payment of $4,000. So Tobin was asking for money. Um in 1966, Tobin also sued a Grandview bank. This one was interesting because they, I guess they gave equipment or sold equipment to people and then they didn't pay for it, so they filed a lawsuit for that. Uh, in March of 1967, uh, there was a Capital City Telephone versus Tobin, and that was because the uh, Tobin Construction Company uh, did some damage to some of the telephone equipment and cables. And this was actually on Highway 54. We talked about last episode down in Jefferson City. So this was a lawsuit that they had um, in that area. I skipped. I'm going to tell you this right now, Frankie, because it's it's the huge ending to the episode. I mean, <laughs> I skipped 
I skipped one lawsuit, and, and we're going to come back to that later on um, because it's pretty important, but uh, right in that time frame. Uh, so we go on. 1968, uh, there was an ask order banning the use of explosives. You remember Tobin, they used a ton of explosives, and we'll talk more about that later. But there was an application by a homeowner in Kansas City to ban Tobin from blasting or storing explosives along the right-of-way on I-635. And as I kind of prefaced a little bit ago, there's more to this story that we're going to talk about later. But the homeowner alleged that there was explosives being stored um, in an area that was not secure and not safe. Uh, and I'm going to cliffhang that. We'll come back to that. So that's just like, uh, <laughs> <Right>. okay. Um, <laughs> yeah. What? Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry. I can't give you more because it would give everything away. 1969, there was a land lawsuit. Tobin offices. This is the one I was talking about the last episode about their property. So, the Tobin offices were in this area called the Rosedale Urban Renewal Project Area. And it was tw- they owned 28 acres of this area. The agency condemned their building to do a massive overhaul of the area. So Tobin filed a suit against them, but lost because they didn't want to get their building condemned. Um, also interesting, there was another lawsuit that happened because the courts, and it was interesting, and this might go into your little speculation that we talked about, about what kind of dealings Tobin had. Might. <laughs> so, yeah. So they went to court a second time because of the appraised value of the property. Okay. The Urban Renewal Board felt that the track of land was only worth between $250,000 and $500,000. Or 500, However, a court-appointed appraiser valued the property at $1.45 million. So a jury was, was, was created to determine if the award was too big or too small. They were awarded, Tobin was awarded $1.45 million. They didn't feel like that was sufficient enough and it should have been more. And the agency felt that it should only be worth $250,000 to $500,000. But they were awarded $1.45 million. Wow. So put that in your, hmm, category. <laughs> So as much uh, so, money, if, if you look uh, at as much money is coming in, some of this, some of it is going out, and it's not going out for good reasons. It's it's just a loss. Um, in some cases, lawsuit money and things wrongful are not ri- tax write offs. You know, they're they're not. Um, so, you know, then you build that up with. I mean, how many more lawsuits do you have, Chris? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to keep going. I, I There's there's a, a few more. I'm going to shorten these, though, because some of these aren't that important. Uh, 1970, Ellis versus Tobin. This was uh, pretty much what happened was a guy got hurt uh, while he was working for another company, and he sued the company for 150000 but their insurance could only cover 25000 so he then went after Tobin to try to get in the rest of the money. Uh, in 1972, this is, has to do with the Truman Dam, which we talked yep. about in last episode. Uh, the Truman Dam is directly west of Lake of the Ozarks, as I mentioned. So homeowners wanted an injunction for the halt of construction of the dam. Uh, again, going back to this is where we found out about the environmental impact statements and surveys. The Corps of Engineers did not do one. And it was actually a, a 1969 state statute requiring that those environmental impact studies had to be done before construction could begin. So that was the home, homeowner's rebuttals. They didn't do this environmental impact study. Um, however, as we know, 
Truman Dam exists today, so we know the results of that. They may have gotten money, but the Truman Dam is still here today. Um, 1973, Tobin versus the State Highway Commission. So they actually filed a lawsuit against the State Highway Commission. Uh, one of the suits was filed for a breach of contract. The other one was due to a work delay because the Kansas City Power and Light Company didn't finish their work, which made the Tobin Company late on their construction. There was a car accident in 1974 that was sued against uh, the City of Liberty, Missouri, sued Tobin. And then Tobin also went up against the IRS in 1985. Uh, uh, this had to do with back money so it had to do and i don't know how much detail you want me to get in with this but uh pretty much it stated that they weren't correct on their taxes and so there was some issue because this is also around the time where things started falling apart for tobin in that 85 time frame so they had, they had a battle with the irs and then in 86 there was a tobin versus kemp uh, this is the secretary of transportation for wyandotte county a uh, breach of a road contract um, and then we go to October 1986, where Tobin went and sued the Missouri Highway Commission again. And this had to do with um, work that was done on I-29. And pretty much what it was was that they had a bunch of things that they want that they had that were already set in stone. The commission decided to make work change orders, and Tobin's like, "No, we're not going to do those change orders." And so that ended up becoming a lawsuit because what happened was. Tubman went ahead and did their work, and then the state said, no, we're not going to do that. So they fined them so much money, and so then they went to court on that. They did award Tobin $118,000 on that lawsuit, as well as 6% on the contract claim and $2,800 plus interest. <laughs> so they, they did win so, that one. Uh, two okay. more. Okay. <laughs> two more, and then we'll finish up. Uh, to this one's a pretty important one. So this is to Thomas Finch versus Tobin. The defendant, Tobin, Con Tobin Construction Company, appealed from a judgment in the sum of $167,000 entering following a jury verdict in behalf of the plaintiff for a breach of employment contract. The judge is affirmed in the decision. The reason why this is important is because Tobin was, of course, you knew they were active in highway construction. Tobin was owned by Patricia O'Rourke and her sons. Patricia was the president and chairman of the board, and she owned a majority of the Tobin stock. In 1986, Tobin was financially distressed. This uh, circumstance impaired Tobin's ability to acquire bonding and hence to bid on new construction jobs. Tobin was in search of new management at the recommendation of a consultant who had devised a five-year plan to restore the profitability of the corporation. That's where Thomas Finch comes in. Thomas Finch came in and tried to do that for the company, and it didn't work out, and so that became a whole cluster. So that is the time frame where the whole switch came for Tobin and things started switching to where they weren't, they, they couldn't, they couldn't survive. They couldn't even acquire bonding to work, do their projects anymore. And this pretty much the company was falling. This was a, a downward. And then finally to, yeah. So, and then the last one real quick, there was another one, which was really weird. Actually, I shouldn't take that back. It's not that weird. 2011. And so 2011 was Tobin versus the unified government of Wancott County. What had happened was that the county sold some of their property and uh, Tobin construction, which didn't exist at this time. Uh, they said, hey, you didn't give us notification for that. And actually, it ended up being awarded to the county as being uh, in the right for that. So that is it. In total, 20 lawsuits in that time frame. 
Wow. Now, in your research, did you see other construction companies that were going through these many lawsuits? No. <laughs> That's all I got for you. No. Uh, it's possible. I mean, again, this is a deep dive where, I mean, I guess it's probably suggest this. If anybody wants to go and do a search for Mossman Construction, for example, it's M-A-S-S-M-A-N Construction, you may be able to find some lawsuits. Some of these came from just a simple Google search, but a lot of them came from digging into Kansas City Star and different newspapers back in the 50s and 60s to get these results. So, but... And honest, and, and that brings up another point. I asked uh, Marissa Elson, who works uh, at the Northeast District for MoDOT, I was like, "How common is this?" She really didn't have an answer when I asked her that question about how common, how many lawsuits uh, construction companies go through. But to me, it seems like a lot. But then on the other hand, it doesn't because look how much they had. You know, 161 million dollars in one bids uh, in the 60s and 70s. So I mean. Big money comes big issues, I guess. Wow. <laughs> well, it's just, it's once again, it kind of comes into that culmination of if you have all this heat pouring on you and you're winning contracts and you're having contracts and you're, and you're getting this stuff and now you're faced. So of everything that you listed, you had a couple wrongful deaths in there. You had a couple people that were, harmed in, in, in different ways too, physically, mentally, emotionally. But aside from that wrongful death, and that's, this probably would have been the nail in the coffin. If they were held responsible for the Lost Boys of Hannibal deaths, they would not have ended in 86. They would have ended in 68. I'm grinning on our Zoom conference because I can't wait to talk about our next <laughs> talk about the other lawsuit. Let's talk about this last lawsuit right now. Yeah, no, we're gonna wait. We're gonna hold off on we're it. We're gonna hold, guys. We're holding off on it. We're gonna move we're to unions. The unions. And you know what? I'm gonna make this short and simple. Uh, I could probably spend another 20 minutes talking about unions. I'm not. I'm just gonna say in the late 50s, Tobin in the unions did not get along. And there was a lot of picketing going on with uh, different labor unions against Tobin. Things changed in the 60s. Uh, we do know for sure that the laborers union, I believe, uh, I believe laborers union 541 in Kansas City was, um, uh, Tobin was a member of that. Um, and they were a member of some other stuff as well. Uh, but in the 50s, it was very turmoil, rough time for construction companies. And there was a lot of picketing going on, but which, you know, it's the 50s. You know, you look in the 40s and 30s, that's that's commonplace. It's not, obviously not as much today as it was back then. Okay. That's all I'm going to say about unions, just to make this a little bit shorter of a podcast. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it always helps if uh, we're not we're not killing, uh, you know, it, it, it too long. Um, yeah. You know, you just get into our, our fluffle, man. That's why people want to join the Patreon. Join the fluffle. Be a part of the rabbit holes. <laughs> Be a part of it, man. I will tell you too, Frankie. I think what we're going to end up doing, and it may—it's not going to be right away, but I, I'm sure within the next six months or so, I'm probably going to release all these newspaper articles that uh, I gathered, um, so anybody that wants to review them for themselves can. And I—I I, I know for sure eventually all this stuff will be available to everybody. Um, and that's my goal, anyway, is to one day be able to release all the stuff that we have researched 
for availability for anybody else to search at if they need to. So uh, let's move on to something more uh, in depth, a little bit more intriguing, if you will. And it has to do with uh, the section called accidents and weird deaths. Oh, this is right up my alley. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah i'm gonna go through a timeline these are some of the stuff that's uh that i found as i'm going through and i I left out some that were pretty basic stuff that i didn't really think were pertinent to what was going on but we'll start in seven uh july of 1959 i can't pronounce this guy's name so i'll just kind of butcher it rt boloya uh waded halfway across a 50-foot stream when he, he went under and drowned, he was an employee of a Tobin working on the Uluga Dam. No explanation was given as to why he was waiting in the middle of the stream. Okay? Okay. That's the first weird that's one. That's peculiar. Yes, yeah, so this is definitely a good title for this section. Yeah. Uh, so the next one's August of 1960. This one's a little bit not so weird, but I think it's... Going back to what we were just talking about with the unions, I, you know, I there was a part of me that felt there may be more to the story. So we go to August 1960. Two men, one a representative for the Weirton Steel Company, the other a representative for the Strand Steel Corporation, were killed when a tractor-trailer truck owned by Tobin Construction Company collided with them on US 71 near Fawcett, Missouri. The company that the two men were working for were subsidiaries of the National Steel Corporation. You know, we talk about unions and stuff, and this is 1960, and that happens. I just it kind of kind of hit me as peculiar. Oh, but yeah. Um, so put that in your back pocket. 1962. We're talking about December. There was a butane tank explosion near Culvert near uh, Interstate 70 in Kansas City. Three men were hurt. And nobody were, nobody died. This happened at a construction site that Tobin was in charge of. July 1962. Uh, this one's actually a new story I'm going to read a little bit of. Uh, it talks about uh, Pittsburgh County and state officials had a mystery on their hands Saturday. Who was driving the water wagon that was hit by a train at Croder, 14 miles north of McAllister? <laughs> Sheriff's deputies in the highway patrol investigated the accident but failed to come up with the name of the driver. Even officials of the Tobin Construction Company, the workers, employers, nobody could identify him. Hit by Deputy a train? Sheriff Yes. Deputy Sheriff J.D. Robertson and Jack R. Gabert reported a Missouri-Kansas-Texas freight train struck the construction company's water wagon. The wagon was used to haul water to wet the roads and fill uh, wet, uh, excuse me, water for wetting road fills and bases. was reported to have stalled on the track as the train approached. The driver jumped from the vehicle and ran. The train hit the front of the wagon, spinning it around. Tobin officials said damage to the water wagon was minor. The train, undamaged, continued on its schedule. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Sorry I destroyed Nobody, that one. <laughs> I'm going to keep going, take, guys. <laughs> take take this, though. This this will go into future things uh, that we talk about. Nobody wanted to fess up as who was driving the truck. Of course not. So that's in it. Yeah. Um, the, that will play again later on. Yeah, if uh, November eighth. If, if you're talking guilty, <laughs> right? Uh, but it's stalled. So really, are you? Uh, Maybe stalled. Uh, yeah. November eighth, nineteen sixty-three. An employee was pinned between a bulldozer and another machine near Boonville, Missouri, breaking both legs. Oof. June. 
June 10th, 1964, a worker was pushed, and this is what we talked about in the last episode, a worker was pushing gravel into a hopper when he slipped and fell on a conveyor belt and into the hopper having rocks pile up on him and he was killed. June, uh, excuse me, January of 1966, Tobin employee Marvin Gabert was killed in a head-on collision in Cass County. Does that name sound familiar? Because, hmm. uh, well, actually, uh, Marvin Gil- Gabert's uh, Gabbert, excuse me, was that guy's name. The guy that we talked about in the train track story was Jack Gabbert. Um, November 21st, 1966, two residents of Cameron, Missouri were killed on an unopened stretch of I-35 near Kearney. The car crashed head-on into one of two pickup trucks parked side-by-side owned by Tobin Construction Company. April 1966, a storage depot uh, for Tobin caught fire. And created a huge tire fire. Wow. Nineteen. Uh, this is April ninety six or sixty six. Uh, August of sixty six near Warrensburg, Missouri. John Broadbent suffered three fractured ribs when an asphalt mixer reportedly blew up. <sighs> Two more. March of first nineteen sixty seven. A crane operator was crushed to death when a seventy foot steel crane boom collapsed on him. That was a Tobin and construction employee. So was the Warrensburg one. And then finally, uh, just one other fire. A storage area for Tobin Construction caught on fire in August of 1967. All of those things, Frankie, I didn't count them. 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 deaths or 12 incidents happened within a stretch of eight years to this company. It's a lot. That's a yeah. high average. Um you know, OSHA is not involved in these years, and there's a lot of different things. A lot of different. This is the right the reason why we have certain laws, but also there are issues with the union. You know, a lot of a lot of the fights that the union have is for safety, is for money, is for a bunch of different things like that. You know, that they're not overworking their employees so much that they're that they're sleepy, that they're drowsy, that accidents happen at that point, and that's what you know why all the other like OSHA laws came into play after that was because you're fighting for you're also fighting for equal pay and when you have a company that doesn't want to pay that's when you have issues with the unions it's really about money it it always comes down to money and so you can see here that and and i can guess i can make this broad assumption here without too much libel attacking a company that doesn't exist anymore but what i would say about them is that they didn't respect life as they should have that there wasn't things in place like i wonder what they did for the families of these victims i wonder what happened to you know the guy that was just floating out in a dam somewhere like i mean how does how do these things happen how how do how do um you know getting your head around this type of stuff and i know i get it it's it's dated and it's you know it's well it's just the way it was you know I think there's plenty of companies that <laughs> cared about their employees that are still around today. Well, Frankie, and I brought this up to you when I was researching this this past week, is that, um, you know, take a company, any company, that has, a let's just say, a thousand employees, and put them in a three-year stretch. How many employees do you think are going to die, either by accidents away from the work or accidents that happen at work um how many you know take a ballpark here i mean what do you think 
within a span of eight years. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I worked at um, a big company in St. Louis for almost eight. I worked there for seven years, and I can't count one. Maybe one. Yeah, and you're looking at a company again. You brought it up. You know, it is a different time frame, but I still have a. You know, you're looking at five employees for sure that were killed while working for the construction company. Right. That's a big number. I mean, I get it. It's you don't have the OSHA regulations. You don't have safety involved as much as you do today. But that seems like a lot. That seems like you you have a bad percentage, and especially with this time frame. You're looking again. I'm. I'm I didn't mean to connect two and two together, but. I think I kind of indirectly did is that we're seeing a lot of accidents happening with this construction company. And who's to say that the accidents didn't happen in Hannibal. We're not, I mean, for that stretch of time for, well, the other thing too, is that people have to understand about Tobin too, is that, you know, if you're having issues with unions, then you're probably, have people that are working that are non-union people that are non-union really don't abide by the same standards like every union member in my family is a proud worker proud and they get paid they wear their hats they wear their jackets with the union numbers on it and they put pride in the work that they're doing so you're not getting i would say that people that are non-union especially like iron workers especially like concrete workers, if you're non-union, it's probably because you're in the process of becoming union or you just, the quality is not there. That's what I'm saying. It's mm-hmm. like you don't have able-bodied people. And I know that this was a very big thing. I mean, you're talking about the Hoffa years. You're talking about Teamsters. You're talking about union. You're talking about people that were working, you know, 14-hour, 16-hour shifts and not getting paid overtime, not getting paid in a sick leave, and they were exhausted. Now, imagine having a crew, and this would be an interesting thing if anybody knows, but I would I would really love to see union versus non-union in 1967 on that Hannibal Road. And you're going to get mm-hmm. a different mix of quality in the work that they're doing. And I'm sorry, but I'll always fight for unions. I mean, I think that, you know, I'm a car guy. <laughs> like... I know what my cars can put out because of unions. I know what those guys are able to do because of unions. Um, and there's a reason why the quality of work that went in to building things and in, in, in that. If they were having problems with unions, it's because they didn't want to pay them. And so what they do then? It's easy to assume that they didn't want to go with union people because of all the problems they kept getting from them. So they were using people that might have not been as experienced, might have not been maybe shouldn't have been driving something when they ran into three kids and knocked them over and then crushed them with rocks and didn't realize it. I'm not <laughs> saying that that's what happened, but Al- Al- Occam's razor is. Occam's razor tells also, me that. Okay. Let's also put it in perspective here too. Let's go back to the company scenario. And another thing that I want to point out about those incidents, how many times have you heard a company that has two storage room fires in a span of less than a year amazing what was in them probably irs reports workman's comp a hundred other things or or you just mentioned about the unions yeah 
it could have been a message. I mean, I mean, we're we're speculating way too much here, but I mean, it, there's just so much stuff here that well, I like. You know why? Like you know why I like ironic. speculating though. I like speculating because I want somebody to come out and tell me that I'm wrong. Mm-hmm. Because until you do, this is what we're left with. We're left with speculation because we have tried to find that workers list. We've tried to see what their union numbers were. We've tried, we've asked, and everybody, even the people that own them and bought that company that bought Tobin even told us, well, we don't, why would we have that information? Why would that be important to us? Well, I don't know. Three kids went missing. Maybe yeah. that was maybe a reason to hold on to something. But frankly, <laughs> we see the same thing from MoDOT. I, you know, yeah. I, I go back to what we talked about at the beginning of last episode was I asked for all this information from a Freedom of Information Request Act, and they're like, we don't keep stuff from the 50s. I'm like, or from 50 years ago. And I was actually, I actually brought up the question to them. I said, it's a road that's in existence. <laughs> Who's to say that there wouldn't be a lawsuit for something that happens down the road? Why wouldn't you keep that information? Yep. I just don't get that. But that's the way it works. And it's no fault of anybody that works for no, the of state of Missouri. It's the way the system's set up because they straight out said, you know, it's over 50 years old. We have, uh, I don't remember, it starts with a P. I can't remember the exact word. But there's certain there's certain time frames of how, how long you can keep stuff, and that's it. Because um, that's that's the time limit. So you, you keep that, and then, uh, you know, it's just like, you know, when they tell – Tell a person that files income taxes, you got to keep your income taxes for seven years, or you know, you got to keep that stuff for so many years. That's the reason why it's the same way up the state. So, fifty years old, they're like, nah, not going to be, not going to be worth it. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, anyway, a couple things I just to take away from there: the fires are weird, the deaths are weird, but it, it, you know, again, we're looking at an eight-year stretch of a lot of crazy stuff happening. And, and I do want to point out too, real quick, before we move on to the next item, is that. The interesting thing about what Frankie and I are doing here is this is not something that honestly has ever been researched before, and I don't think we've really brought that up. Um, let's not to say anything bad against John Wingate. John did not dig in to Tobin Construction no. Company at all, and I can't find anybody that has deep dived into the to- into the construction company themselves. Even in going as far as saying is that we're pretty sure that Charles Webster said after that is the the detective for the Hannibal Police Department that that Detective Webster said after Karras got there we we stopped doing we stopped investigating. So all that goes back to nobody's looked at Tobin except for the Hogue family. And they didn't have the resources because you know what? 40 years ago, they couldn't go to newspapers.com and pull up all the newspaper stories about this company. And now we're able to do that. Nor would they have had the global knowledge that we have today. Like they couldn't just log on and talk to some people or try to find somebody on LinkedIn that worked for the company to find information. It just didn't exist. I mean, then you talk about like you're still raising a bunch of kids at home. You still have yeah. your businesses. You still have to put food on the table. You still have to get your kids through college and be parents to the other children that are left behind. And we know that more uh, trauma befell the Hogue family, you know, and I don't want to get into that because that's really not our place. But, you know, this was a family that was going through a lot of emotions. Um, you had Tim and you had Dee Dee that lived with it the rest of their lives. And so, you know, I, I just think that Somebody, if we're wrong, then somebody needs to come forward and tell us we're wrong and tell us why we're wrong because we're asking the tough questions now. As we as we round this season out, here comes some tough questions for people because they do have explaining to do. This is your site. This is your construction site, 
right? You have three boys running around the neighborhood, and you're saying it's not not in our control, it's not in our hands, it's the parents' fault. No, it's actually it's your fault. You know, you should have you should have had certain things in in place, and I, and I can see how a family can be enraged with a construction company um, like this one that really, if you look at everything they've gone through until their demise, um, was really not real keen on human life. It was more about the numbers and making sure the numbers worked and then making sure the numbers didn't work. Tells me that ethically, business ethic-wise, they didn't even care enough to do their taxes correctly. You know when you're I'm – I'm a business owner. You know when you're doing your taxes. I'm, I'm actually amending my 2016 taxes right now because I know something's not right. And I want to get it right because I have ethics. So when you don't have business ethics going into something, when you don't have these different things, there's a reason why you died in 1986. There's a reason why you're not around today. And it's because it caught up with you. And that's what people don't understand. Yeah, you had your – and I, and I can guarantee you, back in 1928, when this place started, it had good intentions. But then generation after generation after generation gets in there, and all they're seeing is green. They're not no longer seeing the quality of builds. Frankie, you just made $161 million in 15 years. I mean, yeah. you're money hungry. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And you have, yeah. you have public sector bids, and, and you're continuing to get them. But as you said, towards the end, of their, the end of their run, they weren't even getting those anymore. Why? Because they're a liability. This company's a liability. They're not finishing jobs. The union hates them. People are dying. Like, it's like, yeah, I'm sorry. I don't care how low you come in, buddy. You know, <laughs> you know, so there's, you know, there's such a thing in life called a low life. And and so, I don't know. Like when you look at this company, it stinks to high heaven. And um, and 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 I understand why the people that bought them don't want anything to do with them. Uh, <laughs> it's making more it's sense. Making now. A lot more sense. Let's move on. Uh, there's a couple other things I'll point out. When we get to the end of the episode that, that we discussed, but I do want to move on real quick. A couple other sections here uh, before we get to the the real juicy stuff. Uh, there's another interesting thing that I found multiple newspaper articles about, and I found this so interesting, especially for the time frame. And just lay it out for you. There has been th- there was three times that I found articles relating to Tobin about dynamite stolen from their possession. <laughs> First one's in April 1st of 1965. 300 sticks were stolen from a storage shed owned by Tobin in Kansas City. It was also stole a galvanator, which nobody knows what that is except for dynamite people. But a galvanator is an instrument used to measure the force of an explosion. July 19th of 1966, a generator, cutting torch, hose, electrical cords, shovels, and cement finisher were stolen. In August 28th of 1966, um... Actually, I tell you about it, it's only two times where they were stolen, but there's been other instances of robbery and stealing. And August 28th, 1966, um, a plastic bag containing two sticks of dynamite and plastic blasting caps were found by two 10-year-old boys. Tobin responded to the newspaper saying that they were working in the area, but the, they had no dynamite missing. <laughs> Good cover-up. Um uh, <laughs> So this so is those two kids. Well, let me just say. So they deny plausible deniability, right? So they deny that they had any. So where did the kids get it? So what if? Yeah, exactly. So put the scenario and, of what if the kids blew themselves up? Then who's responsible? Yeah. yeah. And it says a lot about the company. And you're looking again. This is uh, August twentieth, nineteen sixty-six. So what are you looking at? Uh, eight months from May of sixty-seven when that happened. 
then the last one we have here is May 4th of 1970. 30 sticks of dynamite were stolen from a trailer at Northeast 48th and Randolph Road in Kansas City. The police said they found a severed chain on the ground near the trailer. The chain had been used to padlock and secure the door to the rear of the trailer. So they had all this these dynamite sticks stolen, supposedly stolen, um, and they've had other things stolen. And then they had these two kids that find sticks of dynamite. But Tobin's like, no, it's not ours. So there you go. A little bit of tidbit. I just found it interesting. Those stories kept popping up on me. So I think I, I figured I should pass that along to everybody. Sorry. It just infuriates me. <laughs> All right. So let's move on. We talked about this guy in the last episode. His name is Joseph E. Tobin. And an interesting thing about him and going to kind of his background real quick. So we know he took over, and he was the main head during the boom of the Tobin Construction Company. He was also, by the way, the Heavy Constructors Association of Greater St. Louis president in the late 60s. So he was president multiple years for the Heavy Constructors Association. Also found an interesting little tidbit that he was on the board of directors for the Securities Na- or Security National Bank of Kansas City, Kansas. Hmm. And he, um, just to let you know, he did die not too long ago. He died March 23rd of 2012. And that was our main, main president, and he was very involved. And you can do a search for him and find a lot of information about him. Again, Joseph E. Tobin was his name. Interesting. Yeah. Um, one last thing I do want to pass along to you real quick and kind of to tie the political aspect of everything together. And this has to do with a 1977 article. And it was from the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. I'm tr- I won't read all this, but I'll try to kind of skim across it. Uh, it's from May 12th in 1977. A third independent appraisal on land proposed for a Western Missouri prison is underway, says Stephen C. Bradford, acting commission commissioner of administration the third appraisal was sought bradford said because of differences between the first two by law bradford is prohibited from revealing the figures until the contract is signed preliminary negotiations with the owners of land near liberty had begun but no substantive offers will be made until the last appraisal is completed owners of the property are the highway 210 land company and j.a tobin construction company the site north of Kansas City has been designated by Governor Joseph P. Tisdale for a new 500-inmate medium security prison. Bradford predicted the state would make an offer on the properties and uh, to the property owners and would either accept or reject it within the next 10 days. And the story goes on and on. The next part that I find interesting talks about, it gets a little political here. It says, the state later regened on a contract in the face of strong local opposition to the proposed prison and charges of political favoritism to Republicans aligned with Bond. And uh, before this guy was uh, Governor Kit Bond, which is a very well-known name in Missouri, was the governor of Missouri at the time. Records in the state campaign finance office show that officers and former officers of the Highway 210 Land Company and J.A. Tobin Construction Company contributed $2,200 to Tisdale's election campaign. So there you go. A little political tie-in. Yeah, so just it goes to show you, and I think you, this is the only thing I could really find, but it goes to show you that they did understand political influence 
and they were involved because not only were they donating to campaigns, but they're also, you know, you can, I mean, obviously you have to put prisons in certain locations because it has to be approved by cities and all that stuff. But where they put the land, that's a different story of how they determine where that land goes. (laughs) Totally. Wow. Yeah, I think it just kind of all makes it come together at the end that says, okay, maybe maybe they knew the, how to play the game. They had political ties. Yeah. They had they had money. Um, they had connections. You know, it it is. You know, I think a lot of people I think a lot of people that have that have listened to the podcast, a lot of the lot of our group that has constantly mentioned the idea behind the possibility of Tobin being involved. I mean, you start to see the broader picture now of how how real things are. You know, you have political ties are always something that can get hairy, but it but it's something that still happens today. I mean, St. Louis still faces a lot of this problem. The city of St. Louis still faces a lot of the the resi- you know residential development, real estate development. You know, where your tie-ins are like people holding on the land and not doing anything with it. So. You know, those things make that company even a little bit more intriguing. It makes you raise your eyebrows to how many hands in the pockets did they have? Yeah. And and how could they have gotten away with something this salacious? So, and that moves you like kind of into something that is you've been fond of is this this KC thing, right? Yeah. So, we talked about the 20 lawsuits. I only told you about 19 of them. This is the one that if you want to take anything out of these last two episodes, this is the one that is going to be probably the most interesting. So we this go is to, the crescendo, folks. Yeah, this is the plateau. Um, so we go to January 1965. And this is a partia, portions of a news story. Um, as many as 100 homes could be standing on land undermined by a quarry in southwest Kansas City, Kansas, where a cave-in yesterday destroyed two houses. The estimate was made today by uh, Ted B. Peacock, chief of police, at an informal meeting of the city officials and representatives of the J.A. Tobin Construction Company. The city contends that the Tobin Construction Company, a subsidiary, formerly operated the quarry, or a subsidiary formerly operated the quarry. Uh, So this map shows a large area. They showed this map. There's a picture of it. Two representatives of the Tobin Company, an employee and an attorney, had little comment about the two cave-ins at the meeting. Mayor McDowell asked the two if the Tobin Company ever operated a quarry at the location. Their answer, quote, no. The mayor asked then if the Tobin Company was the owner its representative said, we're not sure. <laughs> that sounds like good lawyer talk to me. Yep. All right. So we move on. So the next story has to do with, and this is a progressive story to make it all make sense. Uh, so the mayor was a little aggressive in his in his estimate of 100 homes. And, and just to give you an overview, so what happened was is that there is a quarry there was homes built on top of the quarry. They were constructing a road next to the quarry. Um, two houses fell in the quarry uh, in this mine. 
And so they said at first, oh, it was 100 homes. Well, come to find out, it's it's around 10, maybe a few more homes that are in danger of this area. Uh, so what happens in any situation when this happens, those homeowners are going to sue. Yeah. And that's what they did. So the claim was over was $270,000 for the two collapsed homes. There were other people that were involved in the lawsuit. Uh, the only part of this section I'm going to read is where it says more than 10 homes are above the large mine, which is located on the western edge of the city in the Argentine district. The two collapses occurred nearly near 38th Street and no one was injured. So that was good. Here we go. 19 legal claims for the damage totaled 270,000, having been filed against the city as a result of the cave-in. About the same number of suits, but seeking more damages, have been filed against the American Rock Crusher Company, the J.A. Tobin Construction Company, and the J.E. Tobin, and J.E. Tobin. So that is Joseph Tobin, the guy that we told you about. He was mm -hmm. named in this lawsuit. Prairie Village, the Crusher Company, and the Tobins deny they own the property. Okay. Wow, that's uh, to put it in perspective too, Chris. That's two point two million dollars in today's Ooh. money. Okay, um, so so next comes out is that nobody's claiming ownership for this quarry. Okay, <laughs> so uh, we move on to the next article. It says the defendants listed in this suit against the operators of an old quarry are American Rock Crusher Company, J. A. Tobin Construction, the Rosedale Development Company. Joseph Tobin, as well as Mrs. Florence Tobin and Mrs. Patricia Ann O'Rourke are named in this lawsuit. Um, so, so that's who's been named in the lawsuit. Uh, here's where it gets interesting is that, um, well, actually, I'll, I'll get to that in a second. So let's go to 67. The hole hasn't been filled yet. Okay. This is two <laughs> years later. Uh, by this time, instead of two houses falling in the quarry, now it's four houses have fallen in the quarry. Oh, God. Um, September 68, the hole's still there. <laughs> We're three years into this now. Uh, the, we go to a Kansas... This is where it gets crazy. We go to a Kansas Highway Commission meeting. They have put bids out to fill the quarry. Okay? Yeah. Guess who the lowest bidder was? <laughs> <laughs> Talk about burning both ends of the candlestick. Yeah. Don't tell me it's Jay Tobin. Oh, yes. Coming in it. Yes, it is yeah, Jay we, Tobin. We can do it for you guys. <laughs> I mean, we, we kind of know the area pretty well. It's a $2 million contract that is um, that is up. Uh, there's a lady by the name of Mrs. Ruth Shepard. She's the secretary for the Shawnee Township Civil Action Committee. She is quoted as saying this. He mined this area out, and now he's getting the contract to fill it up. Wow. After so so this this is a group. This is the group from this uh, shiny township. They they leave the room, and the committee meeting continues. And as the uh, so it says here, after the committee left the room, the commission went ahead and approved the contract to Tobin. So the Kansas Highway Commission. So, but let's step back. So you know there was some, and then maybe I hopefully I explained this well. There was this American Rock Crusher Company. Mm -hmm. And so it kind of made it sound in the news articles that this was some sort of separate entity that wasn't related to Tobin at all. 
Um, but Tobin was part of it because they were doing the construction. And you remember also we talked about earlier about that sh- about the explosives that were on top of some rocks and they were worried about the location of it. That was yep. because the explosives were on top of the mine. <laughs> That's why that lawsuit came out. <laughs> So we go back. Uh, now we're in October of 1968. The trial begins, and I'm just going to read this little statement. In his opening statement, John F. Fields, attorney for the property owners, said testimony would show that the corporations were interlocking and that various members of the family of the late J.A. Tobin, founder of the company bearing his name, who died in 1947, owned stock in all three corporations. And as the three corporations is Tobin, the Rosedale Group and the Rock Crusher, American Rock Crushers. Okay, now the attorney for Tobin says that the the attorney for the Rock Crusher company said that the company was a separate entity and in no way connected to the other companies. So that was their argument. Uh, another article stated that Tobin started the Rock. Uh, so in another article down the road, it says that Tobin actually started the Rock Crushing Company in 1921. In in that same article. They had a statement from Florence Tobin, who was the late wife of J.A. Tobin. She stated that she became president of the American Rock Crusher Company in 1947, and the company was dissolved in either 1963 or 1964. So, and the collapse happened in 65. So that was where their attorneys were coming off at, was we don't know who owns it, because they dissolved the company in 1964 even though all three of the companies are j.a tobin companies yeah they're doing business there's a dba so they're doing business as even though it's filed under j.a tobin and then so the (laughs) well there you have it folks so let's wrap it up so just to wrap it up the the jury did i i i'm i'm and I, no, it was just a judge. It was not. A, it was not a jury. the The judge did find in in the plaintiff's favor that uh, the two corporations and American Rock Crusher Company uh, were in the same company. It, it was found by the courts that it is all the same and that they are all the same entity. So there you go. Now, I will tell you that I, I searched for about an hour today and I couldn't find anything that talked about if the property owners won their claim. I would assume that they did, but I could never find anything that stated that they did win the lawsuit. Um, and I, so I assume this- also that the, the hole was eventually filled up. Obviously, Tobin had the bid for it. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, Wow. It always, you know, it always amazes people to find out that, you know, Band-Aids are made by Johnson & Johnson, but, but but Johnson & Johnson also has the patent for razor blades. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the the thing that I think people have to realize is, as they're listening to this and trying to get their head around the rabbit hole that uh, – actually, not even a rabbit hole, an entanglement of, of basically shell corporations and shell companies that are basically doing business as J.A. Tobin – and then disguising themselves, lying under oath. A lawyer not, is not technically. They were in a, a, a public, a semi-public meeting with the city administration when they said right. that they didn't know who owned the who owned that quarry. But they still lied about it, mm-hmm. and they still they, and they knew, they full well knew, and they lied, 
and they did this because but they're still awarded like this is the power this company has you have homes falling into a mine you have dynamite sitting on top of rocks in an exposed area where everybody's kind of frightened that hey man you got a lot of dynamite over there somebody's smoking a cigarette and flicks it in that bundle not a good thing not a good saturday so (laughs) you know this is the type of power that these people wielded there i mean you can you can see that nothing really scared these people and the fact that they would go in and then like casey would just give them the contract after that i'm sorry but they're they have ties somewhere and it's in a nefarious zone like nobody in their right mind would give somebody that kind of and looks it looks like what happened was that ethic that they brought through all their years finally caught up to them where even their ties didn't want to be connected to them anymore Mm -hmm. so let me um before i put a cherry on top of this uh, I just wanted to tell you I didn't explain it. So the mine itself was, according to reports, was about three quarters of a mile wide and a half mile deep. So it was a pretty pretty substantial mine. Here's my cherry on top, Frankie. The time frame. These lawsuits started, the first hints of lawsuits started in 65. Um, it really didn't start hitting home until... 67 68 so this goes back to the idea of they're in some deep doo-doo as it is with this stuff going on in kansas city with this quarry Mm -hmm. do we really want to have ourselves another issue where we have just accidentally killed three boys and they don't wield that kind of power on this side of the river like they do in Kansas City. They might have ties there, but they don't have ties on this side. Um, and according to everything that we read about the mayor, he was very removed from Tobin. Mm-hmm. It wasn't the city's decision to have this construction company in there. This was something down the line. But yes, that, that's definitely a very interesting aspect of it. Well, we have homes falling into a mine that was a half a mile deep and a mile wide. Um, that, you know, more or less we create it. Um, then we basically lied about it, and then more homes were destroyed. We were sued upwards of $2 million. And now on top of that, you want to have three missing boys. So what are we doing mm-hmm. with the three missing boys? We're going to make them be lost forever. It's It's a very good package. It's a very good package. For me, I mean, you look at, you look at the serial killer, you look at the opportunistic killer, you look at um, local suspects, you look at lost in a cave, and now you have this this theory here. Does this make the path? Does this make the case go hot again? Is this the end of the chill? You know, Is this the beginning of the warming of this case? Is there something behind Jay Tolbin? And that's for you to decide on this episode. Uh, Please hit us with your questions and your comments and everything on our Facebook page. We will return with another episode uh, very shortly, just in two weeks' time, from all of us here at the Lost Boys of Hannibal podcast. I'm Frankie Campoletta. I'm Chris Ketters. We'll be seeing you. If you stay, stay, darling, stay. You make me 
old soap Stay, darling To the world I cry out loud how I love you Honey, I love you I really love you Stay.